Good to see everybody out here this morning. So please open up your Bible to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. The title of the sermon is How to Deal with False Teachers. How to Deal with False Teachers. And once you're at Romans chapter 16, verse 17, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of the scripture, uh, that would be great. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for giving us your word, giving us the book of Romans as we're drawing to uh, near to the end of it, God, and uh, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us all the eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. This is a very important subject that you talk about in more than just Romans. You talk about this throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and we do need to learn how to guard ourselves from this danger and this threat. So I pray, Lord, again, you illuminate the text and that we will see it and understand it and believe it and live by what your word says, that you would remove me as much as possible from this, God. That way I don't mess your word up. And, and we just pray, Lord, that those who know you will be more like Jesus after hearing and receiving your word. Those who don't know you will come to faith and be saved today. And then, Lord, in everything that you be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. I think as human beings, we all intuitively know that this world is not a safe place. There are people out there who are a danger to you. And because we know this, what kind of things do we do about it? We have locks on our doors, we have security systems in our houses, we have passwords for our computers, VPNs for our Wi-Fis, two-tier authentication systems to log into any online account that you might have, uh, biometric access to your phone with your thumbprint or your face. We protect our bank accounts, we protect our investments. Businesses will pay a lot of money to security teams to guard the business property, and the list could go on and on and on. And, and I bring it up just to say that we all know, we intuitively know that some people are a danger to the things that are important to us. Well, I bring this up because there exists a danger that is not just directed at your homes and computers and smartphones and bank accounts. A far greater danger exists, and it is targeted at your souls. And that is what our text is about this morning. Okay, false teachers are a danger to your eternity. Yes, criminals might be a danger to the things of this life, but false teachers are a danger to your eternity. And so that is what Paul will be hitting this morning, right? That's what we'll be seeing in the text. As he finishes up the book of Romans, he closes this book with a warning, a greeting, and a reminder. Now, originally, I was going to finish the rest of the book. I was going to hit the warning, the greeting, and the reminder. But I soon realized how important this warning is. So I know last time I said I'll be finishing the book of Romans this time. I'm not. Okay, I'll finish it next time. Okay, this morning we're just focusing on the warning. We'll hit the greeting and the reminder next time. Okay, and so the point of the text is the warning this morning. It's this. It's that false teachers are a true danger. Therefore, believers must be vigilant. It's not enough just to say, hey, they're dangerous. The text is telling you what to do about it. Okay, so false teachers are a danger, therefore believers must be vigilant. So, as we get into Paul's warning, I first want us to think of something, okay? I want you to use your imagination, okay? Imagine a large scroll. Imagine that you are Paul the Apostle and you've been writing the book of Romans. You have filled this scroll with all of the amazing doctrine and application that we've seen in Romans, You've also, once you're done with that, you commended the carrier of the letter, Phoebe. You then acknowledged the wonderful service of 26 Roman Christians. Now, you look at the scroll, and you only have a little bit of space left. 
It's not like Microsoft Word documents where you could write and write and write and write and it never runs out of digital space. You could write until you've said everything you wanted to say or everything you could think of, but not with the scroll. There was a physical space limit as to how much you can say. So you're Paul. You're looking at this little corner that's left on this expensive scroll. You know there's more that you want to say. But you also know that customs and courtesies matter. And in every letter in the ancient world, you at least have to have the author give a greeting at the end. Otherwise, it's rude. Okay? Paul hasn't done that. And then also, every letter has to end with some sort of well-wishing for the audience. Usually in the ancient world, they would wish for your health. Christians took that and wished grace and peace upon people instead. They would give a benediction, okay? And they would remind them of our salvation in that benediction, right? And so that's better than wishing for somebody's health. When you're wishing for grace and peace with God, you are wishing for their salvation. And you're taking joy in the fact that they're going to have eternal life, okay? So my point is, it would be rude to not have something like that at the end of those letters. So Paul, in that little space left, he has to put those two things. He has to put a greeting, and he has to put a benediction. He has no choice on putting those two in this final little corner, okay? And that's why when you look at the rest of the text after the text this morning, you have just that, a greeting and a benediction, okay? So Paul knew he had enough space to finish those two things. And as he's calculating, there's still a little space left for one last thing, right? One last thing. And that is what I think needs to be our focus this morning, is that one last thing. Because remember, the greeting and the benediction, they're going to be added. He had no choice on that. But whatever else he puts in that little space that's left, he does have a choice on that. He gets to pick what it's going to be. And of all the possible things that Paul could talk about in this little space that's left, whatever he picks is going to be hugely important, especially at the end of a letter like Romans. This is his greatest letter. Nowhere else does he explain the gospel with the depth that he does in Romans. Nowhere else does he give the solution to Jewish and Gentile unity. And also, that's the unity for any type of groups that are struggling to get along with each other. Nowhere else does he give that kind of teaching at the level that he does in Romans. Nowhere else does he explain the doctrine of sin and how it goes back to Adam and how sin will use the holy law of God itself against us. Use something that's good against us and how we are slaves. We were born as slaves into sin. Nowhere else does he then show how salvation rescues us from our union with Adam. It rescues us from our slavery to sin. And it rescues us from sin using the law to destroy us. So much good stuff in this book. So if you're Paul and you have already hit all that good stuff to where you fed this Roman congregation more than you fed anybody else in any other letter... Whatever you're going to put in this last little corner must be monumentally important. And so the question is, what does Paul bring up? Does he bring up sexual purity? No. Does he bring up marriage? No. Does he bring up an every member ministry again? No, he already did that. Does he bring up the Great Commission again? No, he already covered that with par excellence. Right? And all those things are super important. But the question is, what does he bring up? He gives a warning about wolves and sheep's clothing. He gives a warning about people that claim to be our brothers and sisters, but due to their own instability, they threaten to tear the church apart from the inside. Make no mistake about it. This was so important that it was right for Paul to give the final part of the scroll to this subject. We are warned again and again in Scripture about false teachers and divisive people. Jesus warns us of them in Matthew 7. He calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul warned the Ephesian elders of them in Acts chapter 20. He calls them savage wolves. Peter and Jude warn you about them in the church. The entire Old Testament is littered with example after example of false prophets claiming to speak for God, and they destroyed Israel from, the, from within the inside. And then Israel ended up being judged by God. Now, the New Testament, especially in 1 Peter and in Jude, repeatedly compares the false teachers in the church to the false prophets of ancient Israel. They are the same people, just different time, okay? And ultimately, they are employed by the same wicked adversary, Satan himself, the first deceiver. That is who they work for. And that is why 2 Corinthians 11 warns us that Satan appears as an angel of light in order to deceive. He doesn't show up just to beat you up. He shows up to trick you. 
He shows up to deceive you away from the truth. And his minions are the same way. The false teachers are the same way. They don't show up and walk in the room and say, hey, everybody, I'm a false teacher. Good to meet you. They don't do that. No. They try to look like the rest of us. And then once we trust them, they attack. In fact, they are spiritual sleeper cells. Now, sleeper cells is a concept we weren't familiar with too much until 9-11 happened. Then after September 11, 2001, now we're very familiar with the concept. Sleeper cells work for the enemy, but they infiltrate a society years before the anticipated strike. They blend in. They get jobs. They start living the American dream. You would never know if your next-door neighbor was really a terrorist. He's got a normal job. He invites you to Super Bowl Sunday barbecues. His kids go to public schools and listen to gangster rap. You know, you would think, okay, this guy's just normal American. And then one day, your neighbor gets that call from his boss that activates him for his purpose. Now, for years, he knew what his target was. And he's been preparing right underneath everybody's nose, right? Well, spiritual sleeper cells, same thing, but even worse. They are people who, for all practical purposes, look and sound like Christians. But underneath it all, it's one big lie. They are sons of the evil one. And their goal is to attack the church from the inside by spreading false doctrine and false living. That's what they do. In the last 2,000 years, far more people have been destroyed by these kind of sleeper cells than have ever been destroyed by the regular ones, you know, for political stuff in the world. Furthermore, false teachers are so much worse because they could contribute to the damnation of a person's soul for all eternity. Thus, these are probably the most dangerous enemies that we as Christians will ever have to face. And if you've been in the Lord for any amount of time, I promise you, you've already met some. You've already faced them. And you might not have even known it, which lets you know how dangerous this is. Now, in Jude, verse 4, he describes them this way. And John Weigel preached really well on this to really put the idea of the false teachers in our mind. But, but here's what Jude says here. He says, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now, I want you to think about what he said. He said they come in by stealth. Okay, they're sneaking in. He says they are ungodly and they twist God's grace in order to sin. And we'll see some of the ways that happens as we go on. But ultimately, by their doctrine and their life, they deny Jesus, our Lord. So because of this danger, right, what we see all throughout the whole scripture, that's why Paul brings up false teachers. That's why Paul is going to give this warning at the end of the book of Romans. So let's look at verses 17 through 20 to see how Paul tells us to deal with this threat. In these verses, he's going to give us three things we can do, right? Three things we can do to prevent this threat from doing significant damage to your life and to the church. So first look at verse 17. Paul begins by saying this. He says, now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Now, there's a bit to break down from there, okay? But to make it very clear that this is important, he starts off by saying, I urge you, which is the word parakalo. I've been talking about this because he's been saying this a lot lately. It means to urge. It means to appeal or urge. It has the sense of urgency. It almost has the force of a command, but not quite. It's still technically an appeal, but it's more than just asking them to do something. It's more than him saying, I want you to do this, or this would be a good idea. No, this is Paul saying, you really, really need to do this. So the question is, do what? Well, look at it. He says, watch out. Watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles. So that is the first of the three things we can do. We can watch out. Now, to watch out means to look very closely. It means to have a keen eye. The Greek word eventually was used to create words like telescope and microscope. And if you think about these, these are tools that we use to look at something and observe it so we could understand it, okay? Well, the ancient word scopeo, you can see how telescope comes out of that, uh, scopeo, it had the same emphasis. It meant to study, observe, and contemplate what you were watching closely in order to understand, okay? You're trying to understand what you're seeing. So in this case, for example, by watching closely those who try to teach and lead in the church, you can contemplate on what they do. Are they peaceful and loving, 
Or do they hold grudges and get mad at people who don't listen to them? Does their teaching lead to further obedience to Christ? Does it lead to maturity in the Lord? Or does it lead away from that? Does it foster unity in the body? Or does it seem to cause division and dissension? Does the person care for actual people like a shepherd and and really shepherd them? Or is the person disconnected from people's lives and yet still expects to have influence over them? You could watch and observe to understand. Does the person teach things in accordance with the Bible and the church's statement of faith and historic creeds and confessions that are the good ones, the faithful ones? Or does the person seem to undermine these things? See, my point with these kind of questions is that is what it means to watch out. This is what you're supposed to be filtering through your mind as you're observing people. You can't be passive with this. It's not going to happen if you're not actively thinking. It's active. It takes intentional observation and then thinking about and interpreting what you're observing. It requires that you compare the person's words and behaviors to what you know the Bible says. But then it requires you to know what the Bible says, to be able to make that comparison. You also compare their character to those that you know are faithful leaders who have faithfully led you, right? And if you do that, then that is the first way that you could protect your church and your own life and faith from false teachers. Now, he specifically tells us what to watch out for. If you look at verse 17 again, he says, Watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Now, there's a lot there. The the word for division literally means to make people stand apart. Okay, so it's the idea that they were standing together. Now you're making them stand apart from each other. Okay, it's the exact opposite of unity. So picture the church leaders and the people are all convinced of what the Bible says about something. Well, this person then stands off apart from them and says, nope, I, I don't think that's what the Bible says. I think you got it wrong. And then that person's trying to get everybody or as many people as possible to leave the unity over here and to stand apart with them. And so now you got factions, you got division. Additionally, this person places obstacles, he says, obstacles, which is just the word scandalon. It means to put temptations for stumbling. They're trying to get people to fall. So what they're doing is they seek to separate you from the, quote, teaching that you've learned. Now, I want you to think about this. Faithful leaders faithfully teach biblical doctrine. That's what the word teaching means here. It's the word for doctrine. So these people are trying to get you away from that doctrine, the doctrine that you've learned, okay? In fact, the word or the verb here for learned is related to the noun disciple. Very, they're, they're the same word, just one's a noun, one's a verb, okay? Disciples are all learners, and we learn and we grow in Christ off of sound doctrine, okay? So God has given the church the Bible, and he's also gifted to the church teachers, pastors, people that we can learn from so we can learn what is true from the Bible, so we can learn what, how to live in a way pleasing to God. Some people want to separate you from that. They want to separate you from the leaders God put over the local church. And then they want to separate you from the biblical doctrine you've learned. And then once they've done that, they're going to encourage you to live in a way that disobeys the scripture. That's the stumbling or the obstacle they put before you. They're setting up temptations for you to stumble over. But if you're united to the church, right, if you're united to the church and you're united to the biblical doctrine that is held by the church, they can't get you to stumble. But if they can make you think that the church is morally wrong and that their anger against the church, you now share it with them, then they, you will separate yourself from the former safety that you had and you will stand shoulder to shoulder with the spiritual sleeper cell and this will be to your own peril. That's how they work. They always make you feel like you're the good guy for following them. That's why it's deceit, okay? That's why they're so dangerous. You know, they're not telling you, okay, now we're just like the Nazis. High five. No, that's not how they do it. No, they're going to say, now we're, we're like the apostles, right? They want to deceive you. So clearly, you need to watch out for these people. Are they causing divisions? Are they seeking their own following? Also, do keep in mind, they are not going to tell you that this is what they're doing. They're going to tell you that they're trying to obey God. But what they're really trying to do is to get the church to stop believing or doing something that the Bible commands. And then they're going to spin it as if they're trying to make the church more loving. That's what we hear all the time today. Again, these false teachers do not announce that they're false teachers. I think most of the time they're unaware that they're false teachers. They often are unwitting tools of the devil. But again, 
Watch them. That's why this text is telling us to watch them. Are they causing divisions? Ultimately, are they trying to convince you to do something that the Bible forbids or to stop doing something the Bible commands? That's what you're supposed to be looking for. If so, then you know it's a false teacher. So you watch them. That's the first thing we need to do to guard ourselves. Now, the second thing is found in the last two words of verse 17. Paul then says, avoid them. Avoid them. That's the second thing. Real simple, right? Watch them so you could identify them. Once identified, avoid them. Simply put, mark and avoid. And by the way, when Paul says avoid them, it's a command in the Greek. This is no suggestion. This is no option. You can't go back to the Bible and say, well, it's unloving to avoid them. He just commanded you to avoid them. It's the most loving thing you could do for the church and honestly, your family and everybody else. If you've figured out that this person is a false teacher, you avoid. If they're divisive, you avoid. Okay? And honestly, it makes sense. In our physical life, if you watched your neighbor and you figured out that he was a terrorist from Al-Qaeda, you would likely not keep going to the barbecues. You would not let your kids go spend the night over at the house with their kids. And you would not be hanging out with them when they're flicking the switch that blows up the building downtown. Instead, once you have it figured out, once you have a marked, you would immediately know it's dangerous. You would personally avoid the person. But you don't just stop there because then it's on you if they go do damage. Once you mark and avoid, you report them, right? You report them to the authorities to try to prevent the person from creating and causing untold damage. It's the same thing in the church. After watching the person, if you mark them as a spiritual sleeper cell, then you'd be a fool to hang out with them since you know that they are having a corrupting influence. That's what they do. Does not the Bible say bad company makes good character better? No. The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. It has a corrupting influence. And Paul's going to tell us this much in verse 18. So look at verse 18. Again, he says, avoid them, quote, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. That's what they do. Simply put, he is telling us they are slaves. When he says they do not serve the Lord Christ, that's doulos, that's the word, it's the verb form of that, um, for slave, right? Slaves, servants, they are not serving Christ. They are serving their own sinful appetites. And that doesn't just refer to food, okay? A lot of times we think of that when we think of the word appetite. Appetite just is the desires that motivate you. This could refer to sex, food, money, the desire to be somebody and have followers, to have a platform. Each of those is an appetite that motivates the false teacher. It's what drives them, okay? And what it means is they're not motivated by Christ. They're motivated by those things. We who are really saved... In contrast, we are servants or slaves of the Messiah Jesus. So again, you could watch these folks and you could really contemplate to see and understand if it's really about Jesus for them or is it instead about themselves and something that they're seeking. The danger of this kind of person must not be understated. Because they serve themselves and because they cause division and stumbling, Paul says at the end of verse 18 that, quote, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Look, they're not going to win you to their side with harsh words. They're not going to start off yelling at you. They save those for the leaders when the leaders confront them. That's when we get, we get the harsh words. To everyone else, they're going to give smooth talk and flattery, usually. In fact, the way it might sound is they'll compliment you for being godly. They'll, they'll say, you know what? You're a respectable person. I respect you because you're not a blind follower. You're a leader. You think for yourself. And, 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 and you could arrive at a greater level of biblical knowledge on your own rather than being held back by these people up here, right? I mean, you don't need them. And so that's flattery, making you think like, hey, they're buttering you up. And then he says, smooth talk. Now, the word for smooth talk does not necessarily mean eloquence. It actually just refers to the fact that they're going to make their wrong positions sound right. They're going to make it sound plausible. It doesn't, they, they don't, intentionally try to make it sound as dumb as it really is. They try to make it sound plausible. They will construct arguments. They will pull in quotations from Scripture, usually from passages that have nothing to do with what they're talking about, but they'll pull them in and they will misapply them to the subject that they're on because they're trying to cause divisions. Throughout history, this has been the tactic of the greatest heretics. 
Uh, one of the big examples that stands out in my mind, and you may have never heard of them, but in the early church, like in the 300s and the 400s, one of the biggest threats was a group called the Eunomians. These people denied that Jesus is God. And the way they did it is with some of the most sophisticated arguments from logic that you will find in the ancient world. It's some sophisticated stuff. And then they'll bring in scriptures and misquote scriptures, you know, but they do it in a way that sounds plausible. So some of the most famous church fathers like Athanasius and the Cappadocian fathers were the ones who had to combat these guys uh, to show the church that these guys are, are they're, they're wrong, right? But that's how heretics work. It's how they work then. It's how they work now. The smooth talk is they tried to make it sound good and plausible. So on the surface, it looks biblical. On the surface, it sounds logical. But this is why you need to talk to those who you know know what they're talking about in the word. Because somebody who holds the truth, okay, they're going to make much more biblical arguments with much sounder logic. And usually, I would hope that the leaders in the church can do that. The churches that have leaders that can't do that are churches that are in danger. Okay? But usually the leaders, one of their jobs is, like, like Paul told the Ephesian elders, is to protect the flock from the savage wolves. Okay? Because look, the savage wolves, they're not aiming for people who know the Bible better than them. That would be foolish. They're aiming for those that they think they can persuade. So even behind all their flattery of you, they chose you because they think you're an easy target. Their flattery is actually the opposite of flattery. Okay? And so if that's how these people are, then it makes sense to obey Paul's command to avoid them. They're dangerous. And additionally, just one extra little nugget we need to think about on this is a lot of times the church leaders aren't going to necessarily be aware of their behavior because, again, they're not coming after the church leaders. They're going after everybody else. So if the church leaders have not seen the behavior, you should report it. You should report it. You might say, but what about Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18? Aren't I supposed to go to them one-on-one first? And then if I can't convince them, I bring three others? No. Paul tells us when you're dealing with a divisive person, Titus, 3, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, says that's the kind of person the leaders deal with. Leaders deal with that person. We warn the person twice. If they don't stop, the leaders excommunicate them. That one does not fall on to the people of the church because that would be like sending a sheep to a wolf for the dinner in which the sheep is the main course. That's really what it's doing. Oh, I'm going to send unsuspecting Christian to false teacher, exhibit A, who's pretty persuasive at messing people up. No, you don't do that. That's why in those cases, there's Titus 3, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and we got to follow that model, right? And so that's one thing we have to keep in mind when we're reading this. Now, as many of you know, as a church, we went through this recently. We shared this with our members, but I think it's a good idea to share it with our regular attenders since you worship here regularly, right? This kind of thing where you got to deal with these folks, it's never easy. But we had a young man, and I won't say any names or anything, but we had a young man who fancied himself as pastoral material. And we were even willing to help train him for this. Well, in our pastoral intern training that we do twice a month, certain signs started to emerge very early. We would read these cool theological articles that teach us a lot of good stuff, and we would discuss them as a group. And it would happen in every single meeting where he would consistently see things different than everybody else. And obviously, people need to be their own men. We need to have our own opinions, right? I'm not shooting that down at all. But when you have seven godly men doing the homework through the week, reading the same stuff, and they all come together, and they're seeing the same things, and then you have one guy, and only one guy, who every single article says, you know, I see it differently. And then you start hearing what he says, and you're like, how did you get that out of this? Like, did we read the same thing? It becomes a red flag. <clears throat> and it was every time, right? It was in, and this red flag is indicative of a couple things beneath the surface. One was pride. If you always have to be different, I'm sorry, that's just pride. That's just pride. All these other people, they can't be right. Let me tell them how I'm the one who's got it right. But even more than that, a second thing underneath the surface is a distorted hermeneutic. You might be like, who's Herman? Herman who? Look, (laughs) hermeneutic is just a fancy word that means the science and art of interpreting what you read. Okay, so there's rules of grammar, right? That way, you're not just allowed to give your own meaning to stuff you read. The author meant something, and so hermeneutics is figuring out what the author meant. Well, if you have a bad hermeneutic, you're going to consistently miss the author's point. And that kept happening with the articles, and that kept happening with the Bible, but it wasn't because of incompetence, right? The guy's not dumb. 
It was because of an intentional pride that leads him to this different hermeneutic so that he ends up with these different opinions always. And the opinions were unbiblical. And I do remember that, you know, the other interns were frustrated by this. And I would just say, well, calm down. Don't get too mad, you know, because we try to be patient and take it slow, right? Well, then it kind of went to the next level at a members meeting where the church was doing what the church has always done. We were carrying out a biblical practice as we always have. And there was a, a very vocal, emotional opposition in front of the, the whole church body there. And after that display, a number of people contacted the pastors and said, that guy should not be a pastoral intern. And, and of course, we recognized it then, and we agreed and stepped him out of it the next day. Okay, and, and then, of course, that was spun. Well, those guys shouldn't have come to you, the pastors. They should have come to me. No, because it's a Titus chapter 3 verse thing. Not only that, this, this thing was public. Okay, This happened publicly. It was a public display that was divisive. And here's something you need to understand. If you want to be a pastor, there's two aspects of the calling. You have the internal call where you feel the Holy Spirit's telling you, I want you to be a pastor. But God doesn't just leave it to that, okay? Because you might be making this up for all the wrong reasons. There's a second part called the external call where the local body recognizes it. So only if you have the call and the church says, that guy's got the call, that's when somebody's got the call. But if you think you got the call and everybody else, like, he ain't got the call, you don't got the call, okay? (laughs) And so when we're saying this dude is an intern for pastoral leadership, and the church is saying, no, he's not. He's already disqualified. You get what I'm saying? That's what that, that meeting displayed. Well, over the next 11 months, the person would start posting things on social media that was blasting the church's beliefs and practices while still being a member, but he wouldn't call the church out by name. He wouldn't call the leaders out by name, but it was clear the posts were targeted at very specific things that were said from the pulpit, usually within a week of when they were said, and they were targeted at our beliefs, things from our statement of faith. So it was obvious. And like I said, his arguments were displaying a very bad hermeneutic, okay, where he's misinterpreting what Scripture says. Now, the encouraging thing to me, because I know this sounds discouraging, but the encouraging thing to me is it was members of the church that started sending the screenshots to the elders of these biblically wrong statements and these divisive statements that were on social media. They did. Our church members did what this text said. They watched the guy. And then they came to the conclusion that he was this kind of guy that Paul's talking about. So they avoided him. But rather than engaging with him, because that wouldn't be the right thing, they reported him, just like our text says. And so over many months, the elders, we were struggling with this. We were wrestling with this because it's never fun to deal with these things. Okay? And so we did try to get him to stop the behavior. But ultimately, what he wanted us to do is he wanted us to contradict the Scripture and do the exact opposite of what a whole bunch of biblical texts commanded us. We had at least three meetings with him, either one elder or all the elders, okay? And his arguments were bad. It was just bad. Like, you would listen to it, and you'd be reading the text, and you'd be scratching your head and be like, what? And then what you would do is we would correct it. We would correct him on every single point and show him where he's wrong. But he wouldn't listen. He would just get angrier, okay? And so then what happened is the social media attacks continued, but now they progressed outside of this one issue, and he went after core doctrinal issues like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And some of you saw those posts. Not only did he reject like the Baptist view of these things and were technically Baptist, but he accused those publicly who disagreed with him of taking the Lord's Supper in an, in an unworthy manner. What I mean by that is we usually say we do this in remembrance of Christ. So that's what the Bible says. We said anybody who says it's a memorial, that person is taking it in an unworthy way. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul says those who take it in an unworthy way, God's making them sick and killing them. It is a serious accusation to say your church is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. As far as I checked, nobody got sick and died here. So again, he's wrong on that one as well. Okay, well, and if that wasn't bad enough, you might say, okay, you know, we've heard enough. (laughs) Oh, no, you haven't. (laughs) What happened is he took the views that we were originally arguing about, had to do with church discipline, and he tried to read it back into the Trinity itself. Now he's playing with the argument of God, or the doctrine of God. He was willing to argue that God's nature, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, somehow conformed to this guy's opinion on the matter that he disagreed with us on, right? And he undermined the holiness of God. He pretty much focused on God's love to such a point where we were being called to disobey 
what God tells us to do out of his holiness. Okay, so the whole doctrine of God was getting caught up in this. And again, that's a that bad hermeneutic there. So my point is, everything in our passage this morning was present. He was trying to get people to stand divided from the church over this issue. He was trying to get the church to disobey what the Bible says on these things, which would be a temptation to get people to stumble, because now you're getting people to do the opposite of what the Word says. It caused him to deny uh, biblical doctrine and even start tweaking the doctrine of God. So clearly, I could say when reading this text, he was not serving Christ, his own appetite. I can't say for sure, but I think his own appetite is the desire to be right. I think it's just always this desire to be right. And he was willing to reorder the attributes of God to justify his opinions and his divisiveness. That's just low. You don't take your garbage into God's nature. No, but anyhow, additionally, he would misquote the scripture, which is the smooth talking. He would try to make logical arguments that would make it seem plausible. And if that wasn't bad enough, he did try to convince at least one person who was unsuspecting. He approached our most vulnerable member here and convinced him that the church is unloving and is in sin because we're doing what the Bible said. That vulnerable member then started repeating it verbatim. So that the division started only to spread to that one person. Now that member was gently corrected by one of our sisters here. And then he realized, oh my gosh, I got duped by this guy. And so he's, he's good now, right? He's good now, but, but that shows how he was going after those who were unsuspecting and would use the flattery and the smooth talking to try to convince them. On a different occasion, he tried to convince the youngest of our elder interns. And when he couldn't convince him, he started yelling at him in a public coffee shop, which kind of tells you a lot right there. So as the church, we did our part, okay? He was shown his error by the elders at least three times, but he persisted. We were willing just to let him leave, but then he wrote a letter to our local Baptist um, director of mission to try to get us in trouble with our own association, okay? The director of mission saw the letter for what it was, sent it to me, and said, this guy's looking for trouble. And then when we read the letter, it was filled with lies. And so at that point, we're like, all right, we're done, excommunication. And that's what happened. This happened less than a month ago. Okay, that's why it's in recent memory. That's why it's a perfect example of our text. It's providential that as we go through that process, then I come to this text, I'm like, this is exactly what we were dealing with. Okay, and it's one of those, you know how in math and algebra, they'd make you check your work so you'd get the answer right. Then the math teacher would be like, okay, now go back and do all this to check it. And you're like, why? It's twice as long. But the point is, you're checking your work. Well, going to the word like this, this provided that for us. Like, God checked our work. And it was the right work, and so I brought this up because I wanted you guys to know, again, since these things are never easy, just want to let you know it was fully in accordance with the Scripture. And you guys did exactly what this text said. You watched him, and you realized he was this kind of person, so you avoided him. You reported him. We took it from there. And because of your faithfulness, because of our faithfulness, he was, not, he was ultimately not able to convince even one person of his error, not one that shows how when this is done right, it protects the church. Okay, he was removed before any damage could be done. And I would hate to think what kind of damage would have been done if we didn't do this. Imagine if we were shallow in our teaching. Imagine if you were shallow in your understanding of the Bible. Imagine if he started sowing this kind of division and started undermining everything we did. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, the Trinity. Imagine if 30% of the membership listened to him. Imagine then, again, he reads this false belief into the Trinity and undermines God's holiness. And so 30% follow that. The other 70% don't know how to disprove him, but we know he's wrong. We ask him to leave, and 30% leave with him. Think about the damage that would cause. That church would have a huge wound. It would take a long time to recover, if they recover at all. Additionally, the 30% that followed him would be under the leadership of someone theologically and emotionally unstable. And, and then the trajectory of this person would eventually embrace even worse unbiblical things, and he would lead them straight into that because they're following. They find him persuasive because that's what false teachers try to be, is persuasive. That is why this is so important. That's why on the little bit of space left in this scroll, Paul decided to address this issue. Now, all of this, when you're thinking of the broader book of Romans, should at least make you be wondering something. I know I was. Paul has said some pretty amazing things about the Roman church, right? In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, your faithfulness is being reported all over the world. In chapter 15, verse 14, he said, I am convinced that you're full of goodness, knowledge, and you are able to instruct or counsel one another. Meaning you guys are solid. 
And then in the last sermon, we saw that he greeted 26 people that he knew in the Roman church, and these people were on fire for the Lord. So if these guys are that solid, why warn them about false teachers? Why take that last little bit of space and warn a strong church about false teachers? I thought only weak churches need to worry about false teachers. Well, that's the interesting thing. It's because they're a solid church that he warns them. In the first part of verse 19, if you look at it, and this is where if you're using the ESV, it's going to be better. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Um, but it, it's going to be better. Um, Paul, so I'm going to read the CSB, of course. It says, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Now, you might be wondering how that shows that Paul's given them the warning because they're solid. Okay. Well, unfortunately, this is where the CSB leaves out a word because they think it'll be better English without the word. But the first word should be the word for, F-O-R. It should say, for the report of your obedience has reached everyone. The ESV has it. The NASB has it. This is one time where the CSB just didn't do as good as the other guys. And usually with any translation, sometimes this one does good and the other one doesn't. This is a case where, where my guy just didn't do it. My guy, faithful CSB. But anyhow, but anyway, this word for, it matters, right? Because the word for connects this to the previous verses. It grounds them. In other words, it tells you the why of what Paul just said. See, he just said, watch out for false teachers. Avoid them because of the bad stuff. They go after uh, unsuspecting people with flattery and smooth talking. So avoid them. Why? He says, for the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Avoid these people because everybody has heard about your obedience. That's what he's saying. So in other words... They're coming after you. Okay, Satan and his minions do not want faithful churches anywhere, especially not in the most important cities in the world like Rome back then. The fact, he's saying the fact that your reputation precedes you means the enemy has every desire to show up and ruin that reputation. False teachers don't just go after weak churches. It's the unimpressive false teachers that go after weak churches because there's no challenge, right? But when it comes to the strong churches, it's the most impressive and most talented false teachers that will be sent. You don't send your weak guy to do the hard mission. No, that's not how it works, okay? And so now these people might not even know that they're being sent by the evil one. They might not even be aware, but they are. Talented people are going to be drawn to the places that seem booming and full of talent. Intellectual heretics are going to be drawn to the churches that have intellectual preachers because they know those churches value knowledge. And so if they could show that they have even more knowledge, they could get a follower. Masters of rhetoric or public speaking are going to seek out the churches where the preachers are good public speakers because they know the people will value that. And so if they could do it even better than the preachers, they could distort the word enough to get a following for themselves, right? And so again, the most deadly false servants go after the best churches. That's just how it works, Okay? And so for all of the Roman church's good, they still have their weaknesses. They have one weakness that Paul brought up in chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. They were dividing over issues of liberty. Paul told them how to correct it. And it's a good thing that no false teachers were there yet because they could have moved right into that and ripped that division open. So Paul was telling them to fix it. Fix it quickly. And I want you to think about it. Let's pretend, use our imagination again, that our church, instead of being a church, was like a medieval castle town. So you got this town, you got this big castle, and you got this really cool wall. And let's say you guys are all just really good warriors. Like all of you are just awesome, good with battle axes and bow staffs like Napoleon Dynamite, whatever. You, you know what you're doing. And so we have a reputation of being strong. That invites a challenge. And so there's going to be other kingdoms like, oh, that Sovereign Way town. They're, they're no joke. If we conquer them, that's more glory for ourselves. They're going to be coming. Your strength invites a challenge. And let's say you have a 10-foot gap in your wall. If you don't fix that, they're going to be able to breach the city. And even if you fight them off, still fighting happened in the city. Damage was done. So you fix that wall before they get there. That's what Paul is trying to do with the Roman church. Okay? They had a good reputation. They're in the most important city of the ancient world. They're right in the heart of the whore of Babylon, and they have been inflicting real damage to the city of man <coughs> as they've been calling people into the city of God. That invites a challenge from the enemy. And where there's a weakness, they will exploit it. The strength invites the challenge. The enemy will come. It's only a matter of time. 
I know this is dorky, but it reminds me of when the hobbits killed the dragon, actually barred the dragon slayer, killed the When the dragon got killed, <clears throat> and you just got this company of dwarves guarding the mountain, all of a sudden these orc armies come, because they hear. It's the same thing with the false teachers. My wife told me to say that. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that was my dorky illustration. But the point is, the strength, you know, your strength invites a challenge. So Paul's warning serves two purposes. First, it puts more urgency into the Romans to fix that gap in their wall, to fix those divisions that he brought up earlier so that it can't be exploited. Second, it serves to let this church know that strong churches cannot for even one second let their guard down. When strong people let their guard down, they lose. It's that simple. Probably my favorite illustration of this is Mike Tyson. Iron Mike Tyson in the 1980s was unbeatable. He went from impressive knockout to impressive knockout. And so in 1990, when he fights Buster Douglas, nobody thought Buster Douglas had a chance. Not at all. I didn't think it. As a little kid, I'm like, nobody could beat Mike Tyson, you know? And so just thinking all this stuff. And everybody gave Mike Tyson 42 to 1 odds. Nobody thought Buster Douglas had a chance. And because Tyson let his guard down and got cocky, he was out partying with Bobby Brown the night before the fight. He wasn't sleeping. He shows up a little overweight, not ready for the fight, and he loses to a guy he was favored to beat 42 to 1. And just in case you think, well, maybe Buster Douglas was that good, he lost his first title defense. No, he wasn't that good. The fact was, I hope he's not listening and he comes finds me, but, but the thing is, Tyson was strong, but he let his guard down. Okay, And so we can't afford to let our guard down. He's a parable for all of us to think about. So again, Paul says, for the report of your obedience has reached everyone. It's great. Keep your guard up. But then Paul continues in the rest of verse 19, and this is where he gives us the third thing that we could do to protect ourselves from false teachers. He says this, he says, therefore I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. Okay, so what he first says is he's like, look, I'm proud of you guys. I rejoice before the Lord over your obedience, but, but your guard still needs to be up. And so then the question is, how can you keep your guard up by the third thing we could do? Well, what's that third thing? It's living with two principles always in mind. These two principles at the exact same time. And what it is, is he says, be wise about what is good and be innocent about what is evil. It's very similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, when he says, be adults in your thinking, but infants when it comes to evil, right? Or Matthew, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, 16 says, be as cunning as serpents, but as gentle as doves. S same general type of idea. And so let's break these two ideas down a little bit. First, he says, be wise about what is good. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it refer to? Well, first we have to answer, what does it mean to be wise? In the Bible, wise means to be skilled at life. It means look around the world and understand that God created the world to function according to wisdom. There is a law of wisdom that is embedded into all of life and the world and the way it works. And that law of wisdom happens to agree with the law of God that he reveals in the scripture. Okay, And so if you live according to the law of wisdom, certain aspects of your life will be better. So I'll give an example. Living in debt is not wise. The world's not built for you to live in debt, right? When you live in debt, you're always a slave to your credit card companies. Okay? You're working for them just to get caught up. But on the flip side, if you do the opposite and say, wait a minute, if I spend less than I make and I invest and I save, then it's going to free you up to be generous and you will leave an inheritance for your kids. That's one example of wisdom. Okay? You don't have to be a Christian to figure that out. There's a lot of worldly people that figured that out because they understand that, that this is just the way the world works, okay? Wisdom applies to all aspects of life, marriage, friendships, politics, business. You could just look at people and you're like, what they are doing is not wise. It's ruining their friendships. They're, they keep getting fired from their jobs or whatever, right? But then people who are wise seem to be skillful at all these things because they just understand how the world works and how to be skillful at it. So if that's what being wise means, if it means following God's principles throughout your life in a skillful way, well, then what does it mean to be wise about doing what is good or wise about what is good? It means thinking about how to do good in increasingly better and more skillful ways. Are you doing good in your home? Great. Can you do better? You know you can. Get more skillful at that. Okay? Are you doing great things for the Lord in your church? 
If so, great. Can you increase your skill level in those things? I'm not saying this is telling you to do more than what you're doing. You might be doing as much as you can right now. But that same amount, can you do it better? Can you get better at the good that you do? You can. Can you get more skillful, more efficient at it? You can. Okay? So being wise with regard to the good is that, but it also calls us to think of how to do good in complicated situations. You know, this fallen world does create dilemmas for us where sometimes there is no easy answer. Like you're the Hebrew midwives and Pharaoh just said you're to murder all these babies. If you do it, you violate God's law and kill your own people. If you don't do it, you violate Pharaoh and he's going to kill you. What'd they do? They disobeyed the Pharaoh, but then they lied. And so the point is, when we're in this increasingly fallen and complicated world, being wise is sometimes how do I apply the good of preserving my neighbor and saving a life and defying a tyrant, but doing so in a way to where I could save more people? How do I do that? Being wise is not easy, but what he's telling you is pursue how to be wise at good, at doing good things. He's saying be an expert on doing good. Now, that's one thing that will guard you from the false teachers. Why? Because they usually try to get you to move away from obedience to Scripture. Thomas, a couple Wednesdays ago, said it really well in one of his recent sermons. He said said this, quote, false teachers forbid what the Bible allows, and they allow what the Bible forbids. That's what they do, right? And so that's what they're after. If you're an expert at doing what God says is good, then you're going to be a really hard target for them. You just will. They want to forbid the good things the Bible commands, but you're going to be an expert at doing those very things. So when they come and say, oh, you don't want to do that, you're going to be like, what are you talking about? Get behind me. You know, get behind me, Satan. Um, You won't be susceptible to, to their false doctrine or any of that because you're going to be focused on doing what is good. Well, being wise about the good is only half the solution. The second half is also, quote, being innocent about what is evil. So if you're supposed to be a skilled expert in the good, you should also be the opposite when it comes to evil. Now, first, let me tell you what this is not, okay? This is not calling for you to live in a bubble, okay? You need to be street smart in the spiritual war that we are in, okay? Soldiers in war environments tend to get killed their first three months in the war zone because they don't quite yet know what the typical dangers are. Even if they're told they haven't experienced them, so they do things that get themselves killed. Once they get past that first three months, it's kind of rare for them to get killed. Most of the casualties are in those first three months. Okay, so the idea is they get street smart in the war zone. We are in a spiritual war zone that does not end until Christ returns. So yes, you do have to have that kind of spiritual street smart You need to know what to avoid, okay? So being innocent here does not mean being naive or unaware. Instead, it means to be innocent by not doing the evil, okay? If you don't do it, then you're innocent of it, okay? Now, we know that the world does the exact opposite. The world is uninterested in becoming experts on that which is good. Instead, they want to be skillful experts in the things that are evil. Romans 1.30 tells us they even invent new ways to do evil, They become experts on loopholes. They become sophisticated in their diving into deeper layers of sins. Just look at the transgender revolution. The the level of of just the the dive into deeper and deeper ways to, to help people commit this sin is what the world does, right? They're becoming increasingly skillful at evil. We are not supposed to be experts on sin. We're not supposed to think deeply about sin and imagine how to skillfully apply sin in this complex world. If I could understand the deep secrets of Satan, then I will be better equipped to fight them. No, no. And even Jesus warns one of the churches in Revelation of that. No, we do not need to think deeply about sin and to imagine how to skillfully apply it in this complex world. We do that with good, not with evil, okay? If you think that way about sin, if you are thinking about how to skillfully apply it in the complex world, you will be corrupted, What you fill your mind with is what you will do. So Paul is saying, do not be an expert on sin and evil. Don't do the evil. And listen, if you dwell on the evil, you're going to do it. The, The King James translated an Old Testament verse this way. It said, as a man thinks, so he is. If you're thinking about evil all the time, well, you're going to be doing the evil. That is why we're told again and again, dwell on the things above. 
Think of the things of God. Read the scripture. Meditate the scripture. What you fill your head with is going to dictate what you do. If you're filling your head with the evil of the world, you're going to start living like them. So we're told, be an expert on the good. Fill your head with what's good and be innocent about the evil. When I was young, I was exposed to a lot of evil because I was not a believer. And the friends that I picked were also not believers. So my language was foul. The stuff I watched was perverse. It was wretched. My sense of humor was depraved. My appetites were sinful. And I used to look at the kids who were raised in the church, and I thought they were the biggest dorks. Like, they don't know how to have fun. Look at these nerds. Where's a trash can so I could put them in them? You know, that was just kind of how I thought. And then when I first became a Christian at 17 years old, I still thought they were dorks. I'm like, look at these guys in the youth group. That was what I was thinking at first. And I thought that somebody like me that came out of the world, since I understood evil better, would be more useful for the kingdom. I take all that back. Every word. I still battle with the bad memories of the things I did. I still occasionally have ungodly music creep into my mind. I still sometimes play Tupac in my head and get myself in the mood to attack someone. I don't actually do it, but the thought crosses my mind. And so I wish I knew none of that stuff. I look at my kids who've done nowhere near the bad stuff that I did, and I know a lot of this stuff hasn't entered their mind, and they are better off for it. They don't have the wars that that I still have to have up here, and I pray they will never gain the expertise in the world's wickedness. You look at some of the most uh, useful pastors for the kingdom. John MacArthur was, I know he was worldly for a while, but he was raised in the church. His dad was a pastor and his grandfather was a pastor. Okay, so he did not have probably the same level of depravity that maybe somebody like me would have had, you know, growing up. And that's a good thing. So God is able to use people like that, right? And he does. There's, there's a benefit to it. And so you guard yourself by being an expert at the good and being innocent to that which is evil. If a church keeps itself unpolluted from the ways of the world, then when a false teacher tries to get in to allow what the Lord forbids... People aren't going to be tempted in the slightest, just like they did to the young man here. It's like, dude, get out of here. Go somewhere else. We're not going to have any of that stuff here, okay? And it's because these principles are being followed. Now, I know Paul wrote this in the first century, but his warning here is just as relevant in the 21st century. It will continue to be relevant until Jesus brings the perfect age to come. It is at that time that the father of the false teachers, Satan, will be crushed, Look at how Paul ends this with verse 20. He brings this up here for a reason. He writes this. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's entirely related to the false teachers. And then he finishes by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you or be with you. Right? I'm going to do the first part of that first. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a fitting statement. Satan is the one that convinced Adam and Eve to ruin everything. And once humanity, along with the world, was ruined, God made it clear to Satan that that a human being was going to crush his head. That is the first promise about salvation in the entire Bible. It goes back to Genesis 3.15, and this is what God says to Satan. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Or it could be translated as, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. So, The seed of the woman refers to Jesus, refers to the Messiah, the one who would be born of a virgin, the one who would be the perfect man, the God-man, who would destroy the work of Satan. But he says Satan's going to strike his heel. And that was by inciting humanity to kill him on a cross. But through that very thing, that same heel that he bit is the same heel that crushed his head because Jesus' work on the cross actually was victory. He overcame the penalty of sin with his death He overcame death itself with his resurrection. Those are the two greatest enemies. Those are the only things that gave Satan a foothold in this world against us. And so those were overcome. Satan has been defeated. We just wait for Jesus to come back and finish the job. Now, Romans already told us we are united with Christ by faith. So that means we too, in our union with him, we become the seed of the woman who's at war with the seed of the serpent. All those who oppose God and his Messiah... They are the seed of the serpent. That's why Jesus tells some people in John chapter 8, he's like, your father is the devil. They are the seed of the serpent because they're opposing God and the Messiah. And when the serpent himself is crushed once and for all, so too will all of his seed die with him. I was going to do another Lord of the Rings joke, but I'll spare you on that. Not a joke, but an illustration. Okay, 
The point, no, when Sauron dies, all those orcs die with him. So when, when Satan gets crushed, when he finally gets crushed, the false teachers go with him. It's that simple. Their fate is, is tied to his own. Okay? And so when the Messiah, the seed of the woman, our Savior, finally crushes him, because we're united with Jesus, his victory becomes our victory. And that is why our verse is the first time it says God will crush Satan under your feet. Think about that. It was first under the Savior's feet. And there's other passages that hit that. But then in its final form, he's going to be crushed under our feet as well. There was a definite foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament. We know that Joshua was a type or shadow of Christ, right? Well, when Joshua conquered the, 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 the Holy Land, he pulled the kings of the Canaanites out and didn't just put his heel on their necks. He had all the Israelites walk by and put their heel on their necks. Our Lord is going to give us a similar privilege. Even though Psalm chapter or Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. They will be under his feet. And even though Psalm chapter 2 says, Jesus, the Savior, he's going to rule the nations with the rod of iron. The same Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 2 verses 26 and 27 that with him we will be ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus tells us we will sit with him on his throne as he sits with the Father on his. So it makes sense that if Satan is crushed under the feet of Jesus, he will also be crushed under our feet as well because we are united with Jesus. And I think this then adds an extra layer of meaning when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we will judge angels. God judges angels. God crushes Satan beneath the feet of Jesus, but it's going to be under our feet as well. And so just like, and one more thing to, to keep in mind here, is just like those other passages are future tense, so is this one. Look at it again. It says, God will crush Satan under your feet. Not that he's already done this. No, this is future. It has not happened yet. That's why we still deal with false teachers. That is why I know Satan is not bound right now. You can ask a simple question. Are there false teachers in the world? Yes. How long will that last? Until God crushes Satan under our feet. Again, he brings this statement up in conjunction with the false teachers that he's warning them about. So false teachers remain until Satan is finally crushed. Okay? So if false teachers are still roaming around, then so is Satan. And 1 Timothy chapter, or I mean 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says Satan is like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Okay, so the fact that his false teachers still roam free, and Paul compares this to Satan appearing as an angel of light. That means he still roams free as well. But a day is coming where the serpent and his seed will be forever crushed. They will be crushed underneath our feet. Our feet, ours, will be on the neck of this ancient enemy that has hurt us for so long. We often don't think of our salvation that way, but that is part of it. Oh, what a day. Not only will it be God's justice, but it will also be our vindication. So Paul is saying, keep your eye out. Watch for the false teachers, avoid them, be experts in good, be innocent in evil, and keep on keeping on because God is going to end all of this when he crushes Satan under the feet of Jesus and us. And why will God do this for us? Is it because we're good? No, it's because God saved us by grace, which brings us to the end of verse 20, where Paul ends with this little benediction. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. See, we are sinners who deserve God's judgment also, okay, we deserve it too. But God so loved the world that he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to come and earn salvation for us. Before that ever happened, God wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Then he sends Jesus. Jesus does his work, okay? Then what happens is the Father drew us to Christ. If he draws you, you will come. The Holy Spirit at the same time made us born again so that we could see our sin for what it was. And we could see the beauty of Jesus' salvation. And then at that exact same time, the Father called us with a call that guaranteed we would come. But we wanted to come. So we did come, right? And the moment we came, the moment we believed, we were cleansed of all of our sin by the blood of Christ. We were declared to be righteous by Jesus' own perfect righteousness that he earned on earth. And then if that's not enough, we were then made holy when the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, came to live inside of us. Loved ones, that is all the grace of our Lord Jesus. Grace means unmerited favor. It's a gift we can never earn. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but God gives it to us nevertheless. And so even though the Christian life is a perilous one, 
where we deal with these dangers, God's grace is ultimately victorious. Satan and his minions will not win. Jesus has already taken care of our sin. But as we wait for God to finally crush Satan once and for all, the point of our text, again, is we need to be vigilant. Watch out. Avoid them. You know, all the stuff we've seen. And so that is what Paul decided should be his final teaching to the Roman church before he ends this letter. And I think he made the right choice. We deal with this so often. Okay, so it's my prayer that we here at Sovereign Way that we will be vigilant. It's my prayer that we will keep our guard up. May we be those who watch like watchmen. May we be those who avoid false teachers who are wise about the good and innocent about the evil. May we be those who rest faithfully in the fact that God will one day crush our enemy under our feet as he crushes them under our Lord's feet. May we be those who rest securely in the grace of our Lord Jesus. Now, if there are any unbelievers here, just simply put, I've already explained the gospel. The difference between us and you is we are under grace, and right now you are not. So even though we're sinners just like you, you're a sinner that is still guilty for your sin before an almighty God who's an all-consuming fire. But I just explained the way of escape. God sent Jesus to live that perfect life. He did. God sent Jesus to take the penalty of the sins of everyone who believes on him, and he did. And then he rose on the third day. So if you believe on Jesus, if you turn away from your sins and you trust Jesus with all your heart, you will be forgiven of your sins. You will receive his righteousness credited to you. And all that grace I mentioned will be yours. And you too will be a person one day who will have life eternal. And, you know, you'll get to enjoy God forever. But if you reject this and you say, forget it, I want none of it. Well, then, yes, you will have to answer for your sins one day. And we don't want that to be true of anybody here. So. It's, you, you don't have to raise your hand and say a pre-scripted prayer. All you have to do is while we're praying and singing, you could just tell Jesus right now that I'm turning away from my sin. I believe on you, right? And then if you do that, come talk to me afterward, and I'll gladly walk you through the next steps. Uh, but that being said, we're going to pray. Then after we're done praying, I'll give a, a little warning about communion. The worship team will come up and uh, lead us in a song, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for you giving us your word. We thank you for loving us enough to warn us about the dangers that are out there and for telling us what to do about it. It's not enough to just say, hey, be careful, they're out there. You went further than that. You told us to watch out, observe them, avoid them, be wise and good, and be innocent and evil. And you told us, remember, the grace of Jesus is, is, is with us. And to remember that one day you're going to make everything right and our enemy will finally be defeated. So we just got to do what you said and hold on in faith until that day. May we be a church that does that, Lord. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, then we pray that you would save them uh, today, right now. And we beg you that, God. We just pray all of this to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.